0: you're listening to alternative power plays the podcast from buchanan Ingersoll, and rooney and the brattle group now here's this week's host metin Chelebi.
1: i'm your host metin Chelebi, a principal at the brattle group so alternative power Plays is a podcast all about the new and innovative ways in which companies are getting electricity to their facilities buildings and other sites today I'm joined by Ted Borer and Tom Nyquist, both from Princeton University. As the Executive Director of Facilities Engineering and Campus Energy, Tom Nyquist is responsible for HVAC, HVAC, electrical distribution, utility plant capacity additions, energy budget, underground utilities, and energy conservation. As for Ted Borer, he has three decades in the power industry, starting in nuclear industry in the early 1980s. Currently, Ted is the energy plant manager for Princeton University and is actively involved in campus energy and carbon emissions reduction efforts. So on this episode, we are discussing how Princeton University is using their CHP, Combined Heat and Power Facility, their heat pumps, geo exchange, solar and thermal storage to reduce cost and carbon footprint, with plans to further reduce carbon footprint of the campus energy use. Let me start our conversation by observing that Princeton is not a newbie with CHPs. Ted, can you tell us about the, the quick history of CHP use at the campus?
2: Pretty cool, Minton. Um, I think the earliest uh, instance of CHP was back in 1890s. Uh, They were delivering coal to a uh, a boiler producing steam, heating that through a back pressure steam turbine and uh, heating about a dozen buildings. So that would have been the first instance of CHP in the 1890s. Didn't that uh, have a cool name associated with it too? I believe it was housed in the new Dynamo building, and I just love that name.
1: Yeah, great. Thank you. So, maybe uh, you can uh, also continue telling us uh, on the uh, campus energy uh, demand side before we go into the technologies for supplying the thermal and electric service. Could you tell us about the thermal and electric energy needs at the Princeton campus? Like, what kind of uses do you have? What are the most dominant uses, demand side, and what are the seasonal patterns like?
2: Okay, that's a lot. Um, I'd be happy to. We look an awful lot like uh, many other communities, except we're very heavily research-based. So we have seasonal ups and downs. We need a lot more cooling during the summer, a lot more heating during the winter. Um, Our weekday demands are stronger because of the faculty and staff who come to campus. But it's a residential campus so we still have nighttime 24 hour loads and because the research campus we also have 24 uh, hour research loads. Because the research, we tend to have a higher base demand of thermal energy, as well as a higher base demand of electric than a, say, a bedroom community that would just have uh, residences so. Um, we also have. 365 need for steam, because we use that in the research labs for autoclaves, sterilizers, cage washers. We use it in uh, kitchens for dishwashing, and we use it for uh, hand washing. So we need that 24 hours a day, 365. Same thing with our chilled water. We need chilled water 24 hours a day, 365 for lasers. Electron microscopes, CT scan machines, uh, dense computer facilities, building interior cores. And the fact that we need both heating and cooling all year um, informs the next move that uh, Tom and I will talk about on campus.
1: Great. And so give us a sense of the peak power needs uh, at the campus.
2: Just to throw some numbers at it, we need um, up to 27 megawatts. Of power on the hottest uh, summer day. Our average might be 15 or 16 megawatts. It's gone up a little bit during COVID. Um, we need up to 240,000 pounds of steam an hour. Thousand uh, pounds of steam is about 950 BTUs delivered to the building on the very coldest day of the year. And we right. need about 15,000 tons of cooling. Um, And I'll I'll just say that we have capacity to meet all of those, even if our largest piece of equipment's out of service.
1: Great. Thank you. Um, So let me turn to Tom. Uh, Tom, maybe you can just uh, tell us about the supply side of the thermal and electric uh, energy uh, for the campus. Um, uh, I I know you have a CHP combined heat and power uh, system. Maybe you can tell us about the capabilities of that uh, CHP.
0: Certainly, we put in CHP based on an Aero derivative gas turbine back in 1996. So we just celebrated our 25th year of operation. Uh, We're very proud of the system and how well it's worked. Uh, It's a 15 megawatt GE LM1600 gas turbine engine. That the core of the engine was it it is um, taken from the design of the um, stealth fighter. The stealth fighter has two of these engines on it. We have one. Uh, they marry it with a power turbine uh, to produce the electricity, and the exhaust comes out about 900 degrees and goes into a very large heat recovery steam generator. Great, and we have a duct burner ahead of the steam generator that we can inject gas into the exhaust stream and raise the temperature from that 900 degrees up to about 2,200 degrees and make a lot of steam for campus. Uh, it greatly. Uh, increases the output, and it burns almost at 100% efficiency, so it's a super efficient process.
1: So that uh, sounds like you don't have to run your CHP at the constant level across hours and across days. Looks like you got some substantial flexibility to change the the operation of the CHP from hour to hour, and do you also have that uh, flexibility to change the Mix of electric and thermal output at the CHP?
0: Yeah, we, we can, uh, because it's a fighter jet engine as its core, we can change uh, the electric output very, very easily. Uh, it responds very well. Um, the thermal output, though, is fixed. We have a given steam load for campus. And we have to meet that. So if we cut back the electricity production, we uh, have to increase the burner or turn on an auxiliary boiler to, to keep up with the thermal. Now in the chiller plant, we have two different kinds of chillers. One is electric motor driven. The other is a steam turbine driven chiller. So we have flexibility in that plant to, to either use more steam or less steam depending on what chillers we choose to run. So we can impact our, our demand on, on our cogen uh, very easily. Right.
2: But no, I do what Tom said that because we're grid Hide, uh, whenever the grid is operating, that gives us flexibility of power output. And because we have auxiliary boilers, that gives us flexibility of uh, steaming output. So we really can move in any direction based on economics and reliability.
1: Thanks. That was going to, my, my, uh, going to be my next question, actually. And I was gonna ask you, uh, not, since you are connected to the grid, uh, do you change the... Uh, the the operation of the CHP to produce power to follow the load, uh, electric load on your system? Or do you also do it for arbitraging between uh, the power system uh, prices and your uh, uh, CHP uh, production cost?
2: Sure, will vary uh, for a few different reasons. In the extreme case, when we're anxious about the weather, there's a storm coming through, we will run to follow load, we'll operate just to exactly match campus, because we feel like that's the most conservative mode, that if the grid trips, uh, it would be least stressful to transition to isochronous mode. On other days than the most extreme weather days, we'll base our operation on carbon footprint and economics. So uh, for economics, we'll look at the grid, if it's more expensive than our um, marginal cost for operation, then uh, we'll generate as much as we can. Sometimes even exporting, if we have excess capacity, uh, we can get a little bit of revenue through that activity. On other times, if the grid is cheaper than our marginal cost to operate, say it's all nuclear, and you know they're looking for a place to put that power, then we'll back off. And if we anticipate a period of multiple days, uh, we may even shut down for brief periods.
1: And you said that you also change it, uh, change the operation of CHP uh, for carbon footprint print reasons. I assume you are keeping track of the uh, the marginal carbon emission rate of the grid to see when it will be the most impactful for you to uh, replace that power with CHP.
2: Just in the past year, in, in 2021, the PJM, Pennsylvania, Jersey, Maryland interconnection has begun to publish uh, real-time marginal emissions rates. So now part of what we're doing is is capturing those rates and having that begin to inform our economic decision-making model. Primarily, we're still economically uh, dispatched, but we see a high degree of overlap between economic dispatch and carbon footprint dispatch in the PJM um, ISO. Right, that makes sense.
1: Grid is using more expensive resources, they tend to be the less efficient resources with higher CO2 uh, emission rate. So Especially
2: with a big storage. nuclear baseload. Yeah. Right.
1: Okay. So, looking beyond the CHP, I know you have a lot more than CHP on your campus for supply and uh, storage uh, purposes. So, you have solar uh, uh, PV. Uh, You have geo exchange, heating and cooling, you have thermal storage, you have, uh, I believe, heat pumps as well. Uh, So can you tell us about those other uh, equipment uh, that uh, helps you uh, uh, balance your thermal and electric needs, uh, as well as reduce your carbon footprint? So this is
0: Tom, several years ago, uh, the CAMP is committed to a very large capital plan for new construction. Uh, We needed more plant capacity to meet those loads. So what we did is uh, created an infrastructure master plan where we looked at what's the best way to do that. Um, And the first thing we asked is what is the university's carving goals? Um, They didn't really have a long-term goal and they established a committee to figure out what it should be And they came back that we need to be net carbon neutral by 2046. So the 2046 is the 300th anniversary of the institution. So that that made a really good target date. But this carbon goal uh, was a a super big deal in our infrastructure master plan because it really defined the type of equipment that we should be looking at. Um, We could really not be expanding any fossil fuel equipment boilers, turbines, that kind of thing, because it would be a stranded asset. Because uh, um, not only do we have to get to carbon neutral by 2046, we have to decrease every year from now until then, uh, which means we really have to get out of the fossil fuel burning business as, as quickly as we can. So what we did is, is we looked at technologies uh, that um, don't burn fossil fuels and rely on renewable energy. We're basically electrifying the campus but electric heat is very expensive. Uh, and as Ted said earlier, we have uh, cooling year round and we, we have heating year round. So what we looked at were large heat pumps. So we could take the heat out of the, the uh, chill water system and pump it up to the heating system and uh, do that very efficiently and do it with electric motors. Now, these systems are, are rarely in balance. And uh, of course, in the winter you have a bigger heating load, summer you have a big cooling load. So we supplemented the system with a massive storage system, which is a geo exchange system. We drill lots of bores into the ground to um, run. uh, And and in these bores, we have U tubes where we recirculate water continuously. And in the winter, that's a big heat exchanger where we pull heat out. And in the summer, it's a big heat exchanger where we dump all our heat into the ground for storage uh, till the next winter. Um, in addition right. to that, we put in large thermal energy storage tanks for both hot water and chilled water so that we could uh, run our equipment very, very efficiently. Some of these really big heat pumps don't like to turn down and the, having the option of these tanks allows us to uh, handle the turndown issue, but we can also make the hot ore chilled water when electricity prices are low. Now to supplement all this, uh, Ted has a very large project to install on-campus PV. So we're adding 11 megawatts of uh, PV to our campus to help power uh, these geo exchange, uh, these these large heat pumps. And we already had four and a half megawatts. Right. On, On top of that, we're gonna buy renewable energy off the grid and um, New Jersey is going uh, uh, um, to win offshore wind power, which is gonna lower the carbon footprint of our grid. So we'll be all set up for that lower carbon footprint because we're gonna be mostly electrified. And that, that's gonna drive our CO2 emissions way down. As
1: I uh, look into the decarbonization efforts uh, uh, throughout the various sectors and geographies, uh, the The most difficult uh, aspect of that seems to be uh, uh, on the thermal side uh, on the thermal uh, uh, demand side of the equation, and also on the on the last ten percent or twenty percent of the decarbonization for the electric needs. So I understand in your system, you are already or you have started using demand side flexibility. Uh, so that you can change the timing of when you um, use thermal and electric energy in your system, depending on um, how difficult it will be to uh, uh, to use the clean energy sources to meet your demand. Can you tell us about that?
2: Sure. Um, we already have a large instance of thermal storage. We have 2.6 million gallons of chilled water storage and the nice thing about that is it decouples the moment of chilled water production from the moment of chilled water use on campus. Any kind of energy storage does that. It separates production and, and use. Um, so what we can do is we can buy uh, electricity. As Tom said, we have both steam and uh, ele- uh, steam electric driven chillers. We can buy electricity whenever we want uh, from the grid So uh, to power our electric chillers. And so, what we'll do is we will predict the cheapest, maybe eight hours in a 24-hour period. And we'll run a couple of, we'll run about five megawatts worth of electric chillers for about eight hours. And we will cool off two and a half million gallons of water. So, it's down around 31F. It's just hair uh, below the normal freezing point because of the uh, solution that we have in this tank effectively what we've done is store 40 megawatt hours worth of energy purchase and then we can defer the delivery of that to campus by anywhere from an hour to uh, maybe 48 or 72 hours if we want we can just keep it in that tank um when we discharge that we can avoid the use of five megawatts worth of filler and cooling tower and so we can avoid Um, hitting peak demand moments. And so it's a very, very powerful tool. The other thing it does is make the whole system more forgiving. If a cooling tower trips, if a chiller trips, or I should say when a cooling tower trips, when a chiller trips, um, we just say, well, in that moment, reliability beats economics and we'll pump water out of that tank and our customers never know. And then we can more thoughtfully get the chiller or cooling tower back in service.
1: Yes, Um, so currently looks like CHP is a central part of your energy system there, but as you go into the future decarbonize your uh, uh, energy mix uh, and your carbon footprint uh, will be smaller, how do you expect the role of uh, CHP will change in terms of its usage and in terms of its fuel supply?
2: Matt, we expect to still have a uh, place a huge value on having CHP on campus. We already own it, we already run and maintain it. We're very comfortable with it, but we're going to use it a lot less instead of maybe 7,500 to 8,000 hours a year as we normally run or as, as we've run historically. We'll probably run um, 4,000 hours or less in the next few years, and that will taper radically down. Uh, over the next decade, but it probably won't taper to zero. Um, having CHP, having the ability to uh, use it, allows us to have a smaller well field, a smaller geo exchange field, allows us to build a thermal, a, a, a heat pump plant with less capacity. Because if you look at the demand curve, we only need a few hours uh, of peaking uh, steam output or peaking chilled water output. So if we can do that with our existing assets, we don't have to buy matching heat pump and geo exchange assets. Another thing that it helps with, if the grid should fail, it's very important we feel to have some form of controllable on site power jet and that's what CHP is for us. And then the last thing that it does for us, well, it does it does a few more things. It um, allows us to avoid the economic peaks of the grid, so on what we call ICAP days, the uh, peak capacity days that would set our demand for the whole year. We can operate the CHP to avoid uh, peak demand charges. Then the last thing you may know, we were the first ones in the world to demonstrate the use of biodiesel in our particular model, the uh, LM1600 as Tom mentioned. We were the first ones to demonstrate that. So we've proven to ourselves. That if we wanted to at a high cost uh, financially, we could operate this uh, existing asset on a renewable fuel.
1: So, beyond the biodiesel, do you, uh, do you also have any view on uh, potential use of hydrogen in the future, either self uh, generated or purchased from uh, another?
0: It, hydrogen is an unusual fuel, it doesn't come out of the earth, uh, it's not you know, in nature. So it has to be produced using renewable power. Um, uh, if it's used, if it's produced using fossil, uh, it's, it's really not uh, carbon free unless you sequester all that carbon. Uh, so basically use of hydrogen is like a battery. So you're taking renewable fuel and you're creating hydrogen and putting that in a big um, tank uh, and using it later in a fuel cell. Or a turbine. So hydrogen, ha- hydrogen has to compete with our thermal energy storage, which is relatively inexpensive, or batteries, which um, a lot of money has been invested into making them more efficient. Um, so moving forward, uh, we have to decarbonize as a society by 2050. Right now it's 2021. It's not that far away. It's 29 years. A lot of equipment uh, on the market for uh, CHP uh, and and regular boilers has lifetimes of 30 to 50 and even longer. We have to not just be decarbonized by 2050, but society has to bring carbon down linearly from now until then, which means if you buy a large boiler or a large gas turbine, it's going to be a stranded asset in the future. The the price of fossil fuels, the carbon taxes, uh, or even just direct um, regulation against this type of equipment is going to grow with time because society has to decarbonize. And uh, putting this type of equipment in today will be a stranded asset tomorrow. But there is a local gas utility that is injecting hydrogen into their lines and they hope to increase that to lower the carbon footprint of uh, their, their uh, natural gas line. So it'll be a blend of hydrogen and methane. Uh, I have my doubts about the efficiency of that. We'll, that have, we'll have to see.
2: But right and I'll now. say, just to add to Tom's comment, um, which I totally agree with, um, we need to solve the climate crisis immediately. We can't wait. So these are developing technologies and i am cheering for the people who are working on that but we need to make plans today for how we're going to do this regardless of whether those uh technologies blossom or not thank
1: you ted Uh, this is very exciting to hear from you because i i think you are at the forefront of uh, using these new technologies some of them more established than others and uh, reducing your carbon footprint and optimizing them, uh, which we haven't talked much about, but optimizing them in a very smart uh, way uh, through uh, some software. So you have a state-of-the-art facility there. So I really appreciate you telling us about uh, the the details of that uh, uh, system. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to Alternative Power Plays. For anyone considering CHIP or thinking about their energy supply options, the attorneys and financing experts at Buchanan and the Brattle Group can help businesses and facilities across industries through the chip consideration, approval, and installation process. Visit bipc.com/slash/chp and brattle.com to learn more.